I'll read this morning from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 4. Let's give our attention now to the reading and hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us that we might have it this day read in a language that we can understand, even given to us in a story that is most familiar to most of us. So God, as we come to this passage, we pray that you would help us, give us spiritual eyes to see. By your spirit, O oh God, would you work in our hearts to teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us, encourage us, help us. Father, be with your people. Bless the preaching of the word and help me, your servant, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O oh God. You are my rock and my redeemer. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. I assume that many of you are familiar with a woman named Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom. She was the daughter of a Dutch watchmaker whose family was instrumental. They were used by God to save many Jews during World War II by providing a place for the Jews to hide in their home. In her book titled The Hiding Place, Corey details their work. She details their betrayal and arrest. And of course, she details her time in the Ravensbrück prison slash concentration camp where she suffered greatly for the sake of Christ as one of his faithful followers. Years later, when Corey was traveling and sharing her story with others, she would often take out this blue embroidered cloth and hold up the back of it for everyone to see. She would then ask, does God always grant us what we ask for in our prayers? She would continue, not always. Sometimes he says no, and that is because God knows what we do not know. Just look at this piece of embroidery. She would hold it up again. The wrong side, the back side of it, she would say, is chaos. It's a, a jumbled mess of tangled threads. It doesn't look like anything. Then after a moment, 
she would triumphantly flip over the cloth. And it would reveal this most beautiful crown. The crowd would see this most extravagant embroidered crown as beautifully stitched with threads of many colors, but dominated by gold and silver. And then she would say, quote, in our lives, we see the wrong side, but God sees his side, the beautiful side all the time. And one day we shall see God's side. We will see the embroidery from his side, and we will surely thank him for all things. Yes, even every prayer answered and unanswered. This morning, we are embarking together on an eight-week journey through Genesis chapters 37 through 50. It's the story of God's sovereign grace in the life of Joseph. Most of us are familiar with this story. Perhaps you learned it in Sunday school Perhaps this is the 26th sermon series you've heard on the life of Joseph, or perhaps you just know everything about Joseph from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical. If you know the story, you know it's a story of intrigue, it's a story of betrayal, but it's a story of hope, and it's a story of hope because ultimately it's God's story. It's a story of a God who is so faithful to his covenant promises that he will move heaven, he will move earth, he will even move hearts to ensure that his covenant promise is kept. This familiar story, the story of God in the life of Joseph, begins where most stories do, with an introduction to the main character. Here in Genesis 37, and if we extend from our reading down to verse 11, we meet the main character, Joseph. Joseph is the favored son of Jacob. Joseph, the favored son of Jacob. Now, many of you know that Jacob had more sons than Joseph. Jacob had 12 sons. He had Reuben Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun by his wife Leah. He had Gad and Asher by Leah's handmaiden Zilpah. Jacob had Dan and Naphtali by Rachel's handmaiden Bilhah. And Joseph and Benjamin were his sons by Rachel. Very importantly, Moses, who is the author of the book of Genesis, gives us some more detail He tells us in verse 1 that Jacob is living with his sons. He's living with his family. Where? In the land of his father Isaac's sojournings. In the land of Canaan. This is important. Because as we trace the hand of God through all that happens in these chapters, we'll come to discover that although God had promised to give this land to Abraham just two generations ago, it is not God's plan for his people to finally inherit this land just yet. It's not time just yet. So stay tuned. God has a plan, and we'll see that begin to unfold over the next eight weeks. Well, Joseph is established here as the favored son. And if you look, he's described in verses 
two, excuse me, in verse two in three ways. First, look what it says. He's young. He's a boy. He's 17 years old. Yes, 17 is young. It feels younger the older I get, but 17 is young. Second, he's a shepherd. He pastures the flock along with his brothers. And third, he's a snitch. He's a snitch. I might have to look that one up. Look again at the last sentence of verse 2. And Joseph brought a bad report, a bad report of his brothers to their father. The language used here for bad report is the same language that's used over in Numbers 13.32 when the spies, uh, the ones who went to the land to see it ahead of time, bring back a bad report to the people of Israel after surveying the land of Canaan. Remember, it's full of giants. We're locusts to them. There's no way we can take that land. And the people grumble and, and rise up. It's the same language that's used also in Proverbs 10.18. To refer to slander or malicious gossip. Well, this, this is language that's used in a negative way. He brings a bad report. Now, the text doesn't tell us that Joseph's bad report is fabricated or malicious. We don't know that for sure. But it surely seems to add, right, to the favored status that Joseph has gained with his father, Jacob. But verse 3 Verse 3 gives us the most telling description of Joseph and the whole narrative. It says that, quote, Jacob loved Joseph more than any, any other of his sons. Why? The text tells us. Because he was the son of his old age. Now, if you know the book of Genesis, this is kind of surprising, isn't it? I mean, hasn't Jacob learned anything? Has he not learned anything in his life? Does he not remember how his father Isaac favored his brother Esau? And how that favoritism ravaged his own life? Why would he want to then subject his own sons to the same thing? Why doesn't he just follow the rules, I wonder? Why doesn't he just follow the rules? I mean, Reuben was the firstborn, right? You can go back and look and see Reuben was the firstborn. Why not favor the firstborn? Just keep it by the book. Oh, yeah. Genesis 35, 22 tells us that Reuben committed adultery with Rachel's handmaiden, Bilhah. Okay, he's out. <laughs> not him. Well, let's go next in line. Who's next? Well, it's not Joseph. So many have wondered. Why Jacob favored Joseph? Perhaps, reasonably so, Joseph is the first son of his favored wife, Rachel. God, finally. But I think the text gives us a clue that goes much deeper than just that. The clue is found in those words because he was the son of his old age. I have to pay attention to those words. Moses, writing here, uses the same words that are used back in Genesis 21-2, showing that Jacob links Joseph to his father Isaac. Isaac was the child that Sarah bore to Abraham when? In his old age. He was old. 
but it's the same language. This suggests that Jacob loved Joseph more than his brothers because he believed, he believed that Joseph would be the child that God had promised, the one who would indeed be the promised seed of Abraham, the one who ultimately, ultimately would be the seed promised even in Genesis 3.15, the one to crush the head of the serpent, the one who would bring about the Messiah himself. And I think that that's perpetuated. I believe that idea is perpetuated by what happens in verse five and following by the dreams, dreams that Joseph has. They're detailed there in five through 11 for us. They're dreams where Joseph's brothers, even Joseph's father and mother bow down to him. Let's look at those verses together beginning in verse five. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, verse 9, and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He's having dreams that he's the one and all his brothers, even his parents, will bow down and serve him. You see, Joseph is the exalted son, the one who is blessed and highly favored. And so his father loves him. His father reveres him. And so it's fitting that he would robe him in glory, right? That he would bestow upon him a symbol fitting his stance. So he gives him this coat of many colors. This coat of many colors. It's a royal long sleeve robe, basically. Sets him apart. I can't imagine wearing a long sleeve robe in that climate. But yet it was placed on him. He's the one, the favored son of Jacob. That sit really well with the brothers, didn't it? That sit really well. No, no, it didn't. Verse four tells us, look, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully, peacefully to him. Literally, they couldn't say shalom to him. That very important greeting of peace in the Hebrew culture. They couldn't say that to him. There was murderous hatred between them, enmity. Verse eight says, they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Verse 11 makes it very clear. They were jealous of him. They were jealous of him. So this is a common thread in the book of Genesis, is it not? Like Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, before them, the enmity between brothers continues and it sets the stage for everything that happens next. And what happens next in verses 12 through 36 takes the favored son, Joseph, and plots his course on a fateful journey. So the favored son, Joseph, now goes on a fateful journey that turns his life upside down and not only devastates a hopeful father, but leaves Joseph's lofty dreams all but shattered. Verses 12 through 17 sets the stage for this fateful journey for us. It 
tells us that Joseph's brothers had taken the flock to pasture. Notice he gets to stay home. His brothers take the flock to pasture near a place called Shechem. Shechem was a long way away. It's a long way away. Desiring to know how they're doing, how they're faring, the good father Jacob summons Joseph, the 17-year-old teenager, right? And says, go and see how your brothers are doing. Go and check on them. Bring back a report for me. And so he does. He's faithful. He's obedient. He goes. Upon arriving where he believes them to be, if you're familiar with this story, he just so happens, and I'll do that a lot as we go through the series, he just so happens to run into a man who's like, why are you wandering around? <laughs> what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. Oh, they went on to Dothan. They went on to Dothan. I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. If you're Joseph right now, you'd be like, okay, I did my part, right? I did my part. I know they're in Dothan. I'll go back and tell dad. No, he continues on. And he himself goes on to Dothan. Let's join the story in verse 18. The end of 17 says, Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Verse 18, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns or pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he, Reuben, might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. We see that Joseph is mercilessly betrayed. He is mercilessly betrayed by his own brothers. They plan to kill him. This is that murderous hatred, this enmity that exists. They're just going to kill him and leave him in the pit. But instead, Reuben, remember the firstborn, the one who had fallen out of favor? Uh, Reuben concocts a plan to rescue him and return him to Jacob. Likely, this attempt to regain his father's favor so with all the details ironed out now, they've got it all figured out. Verse 25 notes that they sat down to eat. Maybe that doesn't strike you the way that it strikes me. That's cold, right? That's ruthless. Hey, let's kill our brother. No, let's just hurt him and pretend to rescue him. Oh, hey, look, somebody brought pita and hummus sandwiches. Let's sit down and eat. Let's have a meal together. That's ruthless should show the heart, the heart of these men towards their brother. Well, it just so happens, it just so happens that a caravan of Ishmaelites approaches. And you, can, you get from the rest of the story here as you read it that Reuben is now out of sight, right? Reuben has went somewhere. And Judah steps up and says, hey, wait a minute. Why don't we sell him? 
Why don't we sell him to these Ishmaelites, these Midianites? Why don't we sell him to them to be a slave? Because we're going to make some money off of this. We can make some money off of him. Now, I want you to remember something. That in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this is before the Law of Moses, though it is uh, also reiterated in the Law of Moses, but even in this culture, such a thing, selling someone into slavery against their will like this, was just as bad as murder. It is. You're stealing someone's life, taking their life away from them. This is just as bad as murder. They're depriving Joseph of his life. The whole thing, this this whole scene painted or stitched before us is terrible. It's a terrible scene, especially, look what happens in verse 29 when Reuben returns. So Reuben's out of the picture somehow. He returns back to them, and he tears his clothes. He's in mourning. He can't believe what's happened. What are we going to do? What am I going to tell dad? I'm the firstborn. I'm the one responsible. What am I going to tell him? Oh, hey, let's just kill a goat. Let's dip his robe in the blood of the goat. Sorry for the gory details. And let's just send it back to dad and let dad come to his own conclusion. Look at verse 33. They present the robe to him, back to Jacob. Jacob identifies it, verse 33, and says, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. This is more than just a a passing favoritism. He has sunk his hopes and dreams into Joseph. So you see, Joseph's dreams are shattered in the bottom of that cistern. But Jacob's dreams for Joseph, what he believes at the core about God and his faithfulness to his covenant promise to his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, all of those dreams are shattered as well. His hope and his faith are shaken to the very core, and all he can do is mourn. All he can do is cry. No one can comfort him, no one. So if Joseph's story thus far were an embroidered tapestry, we would certainly be looking here at the jumbled mess of tangled threads on the backside. We might be able to make out the edges of a dysfunctional family tree in the midst of all that chaos. But we certainly wouldn't be able to discern the absolutely beautiful and the remarkably miraculous portrait of redemption brightly shining through on the other side. And that's why we must do more than just consider the fateful journey of a favored son here in Genesis 37. We have to do more than that. We must remember to put it all in the perspective of a faithful God, a faithful God who sovereignly oversees each and every detail contained within the story. 
For this story is more than just a tale of human affairs. It is one of many stories that are woven together to show us how God works, how he works through the shattered dreams of a dysfunctional family to preserve his covenant promise to take one family, to take one family and make of them a holy nation, a holy people set apart for worship and service to him here on this earth. You see, the story doesn't end here in Genesis 37. There is more to come. And whether you know the outcome or not, and I know many of you do, but put yourself in chapter 37. Put yourself here. There's something you can know. You can know that God will not fail to deliver on any of his promises. He will not fail to deliver on any of his promises to his people. That promise first made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 will come to pass. That promise made in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 will certainly come to pass. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will most certainly accomplish every single thing that he purposes to do. So I'm looking out at your faces And sitting here today, many of you have felt, perhaps even right now, you feel like Joseph. Perhaps maybe you felt or you even do feel like Jacob. Your dreams, whether they be your own dreams, your own hopes, or maybe your dreams and hopes for someone else, those dreams have been shattered. You wonder You wonder if all your hopes have not just been deferred, but maybe you're thinking all those hopes have been suspended indefinitely. They're just laying there. They've fallen off the table. They're no longer in order. I know this is true. As I look out at the faces, you've been crushed. You've been crushed by life's unrelenting blows. Some of you I know have experienced enough suffering, you've experienced enough loss, you've experienced enough disappointment to fill a hundred lifetimes. You've endured the consequences of sin, your own sin and the sin of others, even sin done to you. You've seen the bright lights of joy and peace that you once had just fall from the sky like the setting sun, and you've now grown accustomed to walking in the darkness of dread and despair. You know what it's like to be Joseph in the bottom of that pit. You know what it's like to be Jacob crying out in desperation. Yeah, you've tasted and you've seen that the Lord is good, but what you've seen and what you've Tasted don't seem to last long enough that you can actually savor it. But in faith, you you hold on to the truth of God's word. You believe that God is indeed faithful, but you begin to wonder, you have wondered or you are wondering, or hear me, you will one day wonder, am I gonna lose my grip? I I don't know how long I can hold on. You know what I'm talking about? Are you with me? 
Are you there now? Are you there now? I have good news for you. You're in the right place. You are in the right place. You're in good company. You're in very good company. Not only is this common to our shared experience as followers of Jesus, myself included, but listen, the Jesus whom we follow has tasted such suffering. He knows this suffering. The eternal Son of God willingly humbled himself And he entered the reality of suffering and the reality of temptation. He set aside the deserved robe of honor and the safe place at his father's side as the chosen favorite. He set it aside. The firstborn of all creation left behind his glory. And he left behind the constant praise of the hosts of heaven. And he freely exposed himself. He freely entered into a world that would reject him a world that would scorn him, a world that would hate him, a world that would abuse him, and a world that would kill him. He came to bear our grief and carry our sorrow. He came to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He came to be oppressed and afflicted. He came to be led to the slaughter like a lamb, to give himself as a ransom for many, so that by his wounds we would be healed. Healed. Healed from our sin. Yes, but listen, set free from the tyranny of thinking that we are the captains of our own destiny. You need to be set free from that. I need to be set free from that. To be set free from the tyranny of thinking, I got this. It's all up to me. He's delivered us from the yoke of thinking that we can fulfill our own hopes and our own dreams by just following our heart, right? By doing all that we can do, by working as much as we can to make it happen. He's delivered us from the yoke of that thinking. Jesus transfers us, listen, he transfers us out of our own little kingdoms and he transfers us into his kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom where the king has in his hand a record of each and every day that lies before us, where he knows everything about us, every hair on our head. He knows our coming and our going when we lie down, when we get up. He knows every word and every thought before they even come into our mind or in our heart. He knows us. He has in his hand a record of that. We have a king who holds up what we see as a jumbled mess of tangled threads and he just transforms our eyes. He transforms our eyes so that we can see the beautiful masterpiece that he is shaping us to be. In the light of Jesus, we can really see. In his light, we see light. For he opens our eyes and we can truly behold his marvelous sovereign grace and we can see his hand working in his light. He invites us, he invites you, 
to pile up your shattered dreams, to pile up all your deferred hopes, all your disappointments, all your hurts, all your sorrows, all your suffering, all your wants. He says, pile them up and bring them and lay them down at my feet. Give them to me, for I am good. I am your good shepherd, and I will lead you in faithfulness. You know, if the story of Joseph tells us anything, it tells us that God does indeed know exactly what he's doing. You ask that sometimes, right? I do. Some of you ask me. <laughs> Pastor, does God know what he's doing? Yes. Yes. You may not be able to see that right now. In Joseph's story, we're going to go through these chapters and you're going to see it. It's going to become abundantly clear. But the same is true for your own life. It may be hard right now where you sit. It may be hard to discern exactly what God is doing right here, right now. But know this, he who begun the good work in you will most certainly bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful. He will surely do it. He is faithful. His word is true. If you belong to Jesus, you've been given the remarkable gift of faith. Faith that hopes, faith that perseveres, and faith that ultimately triumphs because Jesus has triumphed for us. So hang on, brothers and sisters. Hang on. Hang on to Jesus. Why? Because he's got this. He's got you. He has not and he will not abandon you. He has you firmly in his grip. Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from his love. I promise you this, Jesus will not let you go. Pastor, how can you make such a promise? Because his word says it. All who come to him, he will certainly raise them up on the last day. Though she was led to walk through the valley of the shadow of death itself, Corey Ten Boom came to see, and she came to savor this kind of faithfulness shown to her by her God and Savior. So I want to end today by sharing the words of her now famous tapestry poem, aptly titled, Life is But a Weaving. Life is But a Weaving. And I share it in hope that you will indeed be encouraged by it. It's a short poem. Allow me to read it. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly, will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern that he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth condemns. He gives the very best to those who leave it all to him. Amen, and thanks be to God. Amen. Would you grab your bulletins?